our vision of bio, of a biophilic city is one where it's not just a city where we have little parts of nature, pieces of nature that we visit or we go to see. We're, we, we love parks. Parks are really important, but this is really something beyond parks. Uh, so we want to live in a city where we are essentially immersed in nature. Nature is all around us all the time. We're hearing birds, we're seeing trees, we're experiencing uh, the sights and sounds of, of nature. We're surrounded by it. It's seamless. Hey, everybody. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast, where we explore the emerging technologies for building greener, healthier, and smarter communities. I'm your host, Nadine Khala, and this week, I'm thrilled to introduce you to Tim Beatley, the Teresa Hines Professor of Sustainable Communities in the School of Architecture at the University of Virginia, where he has taught for the last 30 years. Tim also popularized the term biophilic cities and directs the Biophilic Cities Project at the university. I first met Tim in 2019 at the Nature of Cities Festival, which was in Paris at the time. And I was pretty stunned by his knowledge on how to rewild and integrate nature into our cities. He's authored over 15 books and produced nearly a dozen short films about inspiring examples of biophilic cities around the world. In this episode, we touch on many of these, from the heart of downtown Austin, which hosts the world's largest urban bat colony, an estimated 1.5 million bats that were once deemed a public health hazard and are now a site which attracts tourists from all over the world, to the world's largest roost of swifts, which swarm and spiral into the chimney of a Portland elementary school. Tim shows us that nature is all around us. We just need to see it, really see it. I truly admire Tim for how he's been able to translate so many of these stories that are typically hidden away in academia and has been able to bring them to the forefront, either through his writing or through a number of different films that he's co-produced. We discussed this and a whole lot more in this episode. So please enjoy my conversation with Tim. Hi, Tim. Welcome to the Internet of Nature podcast. Thanks for having me. Great to have you on, and it's great to catch up as well. Uh, I know that's been a long time coming. I want to reminisce just slightly to kick us off. We met at the Nature of Cities Summit in Paris, I believe it was, uh, in 2019, where you were giving an interesting lecture and an exercise, I believe you had us do, interactive exercise about coming up with our own design of a biophilic city. So perhaps that's a good place to start is... What is a biophilic city, and how did you get started mm. with that concept? Yeah, well, there there isn't one uh, formula or or one kind of rigid rigid idea, but it's it, as the name implies, it builds on the idea of biophilia uh, that we carry with us this innate connection, this innate desire to have contact with with nature. That nature is not something. Uh, optional. It's absolutely essential to, to leading a, a happy, healthy, and meaningful life. So we start with that. So we want cities that are full of nature, and that nature can take lots of different forms. It can be human-designed green rooftops and, and living walls, but it also can be, you know, uh, rivers and streams and forests and remnant nature and and birds, of course, and urban wildlife. And so our vision of, bio, of a biophilic city is one where it's not just a city where we have little parts of nature, pieces of nature that we visit or we go to see. We're, we, we love parks. Parks are really important, but this is really something beyond parks. Uh, so we want to live in a city where we are essentially immersed in nature. Nature is all around us all the time. We're hearing birds, we're seeing trees, we're experiencing uh, sights and sounds of, of nature. We're surrounded by it. It's seamless. So there's no perfect place where this is the case, but uh, there are you know, a number of, of aspiring cities that are getting, getting close to that. Um, so those are some of the qualities of a biophilic city. There, it's not just the presence or absence of nature. It's also the values of that city, the commitments of that city, how much of a of a city's budget is spent on on nature, restoring nature, celebrating nature, protecting nature. Uh, what are the commitments of that city council or that that governance structure? How much of a culture 
of biophilia do you have in, in, in that city? We have many examples of places that have lots of nature, but mm -hmm. if the residents of that city are not caring for that nature, not engaged in that nature, are not able to recognize common species of flora and fauna, for example, don't care about that nature, that's not a very biophilic uh, city. Right, right. Is this personal for you? Well, it is. I, I've been teaching, I've been involved in urban planning for more than 30 years now. And in one way or another, it's involved thinking about nature and cities, environmental planning uh, for cities. And sometimes over the course of my career, that's had more to do with endangered species and biodiversity conservation. And other, other, other times it's been about co coastal resilience and hazard mitigation. And, and But it all kind of revolves around this idea that uh, we don't live and don't want to live in this bifurcated city nature uh, world. We we want nature around us, again, back to that idea of a biophilic city. But I think for most of us who are involved in, in nature in cities in some way or another, it goes back to, you know, our childhood, our kind of upbringing, our people who had an influence on our lives. And and so that's certainly true for me. I, I grew up very much in a city, but I grew up in a, in a biophilic uh, house surrounded by trees with mm. lots of windows that opened, no air conditioning, hearing birdsong, loving birds and nature, and what some would call a, a free-range kid or a feral kid, maybe, as my, my friend Peter Newman says, free-range isn't, isn't sufficient. We've got to talk about feral kids. I was a feral kid, so I spent a lot of time climbing trees and looking for birds and doing a lot of, you know, in, in a city that was very much a sort of walkable city. So that, so I, I, I grew up kind of uh, valuing this combination of the, of the urban and the, and the natureful. What, what city was that? This is Alexandria, Virginia. So this is the uh, mm -hmm. nor Northern part of Virginia, a very historic city just across the Potomac river from Washington, DC. So not a large city, that time, 100,000 plus, but a beautiful city with a, a lot of nature, particularly on the on the west end of the city where I grew up. Is that something that they've been able to maintain through development pressures? Well, they have a, a lot of it. And my, my original forest is still there. Mm -hmm. Like a lot of cities, I think, you know, there, there's been nibbling away at some of that uh, forest canopy and and they've they've done what they can I think to be replanting trees and protecting what they have the city is very progressive place and had one of the kind of early leaders in in creating mixed use pedestrian environments and historic preservation it's George Washington's hometown it has a lot of sort of history baked into it and uh, so a lot of really wonderful kind of ur urban planning innovations uh, there. It, uh, an urban form that, uh, you know, kind of accommodates the expansion of the metro system going back to the 1970s and, and creating its own bus system, for example, to, to blend, to connect with that metro. Um, and I, I actually grew up as the, as the son of the mayor. I was the mayor's son, and my, my dad was mayor for about 20 years. So I very much grew up kind of watching all this happen. And uh, he, was, uh, he was a planner, even though he, he didn't use that word. But, hmm. but a, lo a lot of things, a lot of qualities in that city that are, I think, that go back to that time. When he was mayor, and and and, oh, and the leadership of other people as well, but right. yeah, and so I had two two parents who were also they were urbanists, but they were also nature lovers, and that was important to me as well. So hmm. birds, for example, my my mom was a lover of birds, and so I I don't claim to be a birder. I don't know that I can, but I I've always been a lifelong lover of birds, and so it goes back to her, I think, in a lot of ways. Yeah, it's 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 easy to see where many of those those influences came from. Do you, were you privy to any of the you know decisions that were going on in the mayor's office? Well, it uh, was a lot of conversation at, mm. at home and in other places. I spent a lot of time watching city council meetings. My my dad was someone who was sort of famous for 
letting meetings go on a long time. Everybody got to speak and we, you know, every voice needed to be heard. And he, he had a, a, a kind of strong sense of that, of needing to hear and, and giving people a chance to talk about what they loved or didn't love about the city. And so I watched a lot of that un, unfold and I answered a lot of phone calls. And, and in some cases, I rate, you know, citizens who weren't happy with things that happened, but and, and did a lot of campaigning, you know, so from a very early age, I was kind of immersed in that world. And in some ways, unlike today, where we have a kind of jaded view of, of politics and political system, it, to me, it was all very wonderful and very positive. And uh, local government is not always that way, but but that the, the memories I had for, were really positive for the most part. So, so yeah, I mean, they're everything, again, from this bus system that became known as the Beatley bus. It was one of the first sort of cities to have a, its own bus uh, right. system. And uh, he, he spent a lot of time, actually, he was a, this is probably more detail than you want. Uh, no, this is fascinating. That, uh, <laughs> I don't get a chance to talk about it very, very much, but um, his day job was as a United captain, an airline, airline pilot, basically. So mm-hmm. the other part of the story for me was I, I grew up in a, in a flying a household. And um, I learned to fly. I had my pilot's license, license when I was 17. It was more important to me than driving. Driving was important because it got me to the airport so that sure. I could fly. Right. Uh, so, so it was wonderful. So we, we had that. For him, he was always going on trips and then seeing things that other cities were doing. And he had this sort of mm-hmm. literally this high alti- higher altitude view of the world. And so he was able to bring back, he was kind of known as the flying mayor and he would bring all, all this insight and things that he learned about in other places. And he, and he also went, there were German Marshall Fund, you know, trips to Europe and, and other, you know, kind of formal uh, visits mm-hmm. that, that he, he, he was very much someone, uh, which is pretty close to what I do right now. He, he was very much out there looking for best practice, looking for new ideas and bringing them home and trying to capture them and, and tell those stories and apply them to his particular uh, city. I was going to say, in many ways, it sounds like you've kind of, through your work with the Biophilic Cities Project and your own academic research, you've kind of been carrying that legacy forward. Because I think that's, in many ways, now that what you're doing is kind of taking all these ideas that you saw growing up, having packaged that ultimately as the Biophilic Cities Project and indeed flying all around the world and collecting best practices of, of cities that are doing just that. That's right. And uh, I'm, I'm maybe because I grew up in such a political environment, my work is mostly apolitical. At least I'm not campaigning. I'm not, you know, it is about sharing mm. information and insights and, and doing it in hopefully some creative ways. A lot of the stories we tell are told through things like short short documentary films, which has become a, a really powerful way of, of conveying ideas, it seems, seems to me. Yeah, because I think that's something that we definitely have in common, both being scientists and coming from academia, but I think really driven by a love for science communication and specifically a love for storytelling and always mm-hmm. trying to figure out what are the best ways that you can effectively communicate perhaps what's happening in the science and what we feel like yeah. the public has to know? So you mentioned documentary filmmaking there, but what, what, what have you seen as some of the most effective ways to communicate science, particularly when it comes to biophilic cities? Gosh, um, well, you know, I know at some point we want to talk about technology, and I think there's some really wonderful ways that, that techno- technology can help engage us in, in learning about the natural world and in doing science. Obviously, huge benefits in terms of, of citizen science and, and that kind of thing. But yeah, I uh, years ago just happened to connect with a, a, a filmmaker a guy named Chuck Davis. This this is kind of the deeper story about the power of film. I do believe that the visual messaging is is really important, and that and that especially for conveying this. Like, this isn't quite what you're asking about science, but conveying the vision of a of a biophilic city is hard to do yeah. only with words. Mm-hmm. And the visual is really important and being able to look at a, a rendering or a photograph or something that says, wow, that's really the kind of city I want to live in. And that is capturing a lot of the 
biological and you know scientific elements of that city in a visually compelling kind kind of way. And um, and film has had that effect for me. So we've. Uh, just done a most recent book is about birds and uh, this book called The Bird-Friendly City, which is uh, stories about what cities around the world are doing to protect, conserve, celebrate bird life. And so we've made a series of short five to seven minute uh, documentary films about innovative bird conservation stories. So we went to Portland, Oregon and filmed this, this these September evenings where the Vox's Swift's migrate through town and they and they they roost in very dramatic fashion these swirling thousands of these birds that wow. that descend on and one particular chimney of an elementary school and uh, it's hard to convey the power the wonder the awe of that event without seeing it and hearing it and i've described it and i've described it in the book but actually to convey that story and that understanding of these amazing migratory birds that are, you know, doing this thing that these things that seem almost impossible to imagine, it, it seemed, you know, contrary to the laws of nature, to the physics of, yeah, it's on a different but anyway, level. I, yeah, as I forgot, you know, I, I started to talk about Chuck Davis, who's a Colorado based filmmaker who started making films and we just happened to, he was, he was premiering uh, his latest film at a conference where I was giving a talk. And then we ended up chatting together and uh, he had, Mostly this talk was about concepts of green urbanism and a lot of European examples of going back to an earlier book that I had written. And he said, well, you know, that could be my next film. You really ought to think about making this a film. You're trying to tell all these wonderful stories about about cities. And so anyway, we, we decided to collaborate and we experimented with a we, we arranged an initial shoot in Austin, Texas, where we went to basically capture the story of the the million and a half Mexican free-tailed bats that that take up residence under the Congress Avenue Bridge in downtown Austin every year, every summer. Uh, they migrate back to town, and and it was a beautiful story. And uh, I couldn't imagine again another example of telling a story about these remarkable bats yeah. and the and the evolution of this this city and their attitude towards these bats from seeing them as a health risk and needing to eradicate them in the beginning to today where they're beloved and it's a tourism attraction and hundreds of people uh, line up every evening in the summer to watch them emerge from under this, under this bridge. And that became a one story in a whole series of stories in this film called the nature of cities, which, which you can find online and which I just discovered you can also rent on Amazon Prime. A little, uh, a little, um, cool. <laughs> a little plug for, uh, the nature of cities is what it's, what it's called. Um, and, and I know you've got Rich Louv on the show. We went and interviewed him in uh, San Diego and he, it was, this was a wonderful interview oh. with him and, and Stephen Kellert and, uh, and other, other kind of really important people in, in the evolution of biophilic mm. planning and design. Well, before we get into into Richard Louvre, which I know is, has been an inspiration to your work and vice versa as well, about the, the bat story that kind of set off something for me is something you mentioned at the top of the show, which was this, the cultural aspect and the social aspect of biophilic cities is so important to get this off the ground is biophilia, it often sounds like something that's purely biological or purely ecological. But in fact, if you don't have that that buy-in from citizens and that cultural shift, then really, how can it be a success? And what was so fascinating about this story with the, the bats in Austin, the summer bats in Austin, is that you said it was something that was once deemed a health risk to then now turning into a tourist attraction. How did yeah. that happen? And can we learn anything from that health risk to tourist attraction yeah. journey? I think we can, and unfortunately, in the in the film, um, it you know comprises all of three or four minutes, probably in an hour long right. uh, film. But uh, the Vox's Swifts in Portland represent another, I think, another example, similar kinds of insights. But uh, yeah, I think that the lessons are are several. I mean, one is you need to look carefully at what you know. This we tend to mm-hmm. overblow 
uh, or overemphasize uh, the dangers of contact with with nature. And from my perspective, the the benefits far outweigh the 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 negatives. That happens there, a lot, a, doesn't it? Yeah. So we, we you know there's a basic problem of biophobia that mm. that is a challenge in in many cities, and that's mainly because residents, citizens of those places haven't spent a lot of time in nature and mm-hmm. um, we have become profoundly disconnected from the natural world. So part of the story in Austin is spending more time watching bats and being comfortable with bats and, and, and he- hearing um, uh, experts talk about how important these bats are and how wondrous they are. This is, you know, really a remarkable privilege to have a, a million and a half bats. Just the story is that the Congress Avenue bridge is main bridge had gone through a renovation. And so the crevices underneath the bridge were just the right size. They weren't designed to accommodate the bats, but it was accidental. But what a wondrous, wonderful accident this this mm-hmm. was. And so it did take active advocacy on the parts of, of, of people, bat supporters, if you will. And um, bat, Merlin- Bat men yeah, and women. Bat, exactly. <laughs> uh, Merlin Tuttle, one of the people we interviewed in the film, the founder and president at that time of, of Bat Conservation International, continues to be the premier bat conservation organization in the world, an advocacy group in the world. He literally moved their office from Wisconsin to Austin in, in the midst of all this. And his voice was quite quite powerful. And then over time, you know, that this became a source of pride for, for the city. And one of our definitions of, of a biophilic city is a city that works to maximize moments of awe. And the, the idea of awe, that feeling of awe, we have a lot of emerging research about it now, and it's, it's really important. Uh, we want to live in a city of awe. And um, if we're always fearful and we're always closed to these connections to, yeah. to nature or parts of nature that we that make us uncomfortable or we don't know much about, then it, it's it's hard to to imagine that kind of city. Yeah, yeah. These these feelings of awe and wonder that we feel in nature are incredibly important as adults for everyone. But as as Richard Louvre writes in childhood those experiences are even more profound because they can they can kind of lay the foundation for what some might say a much more nature rich life or at least one that you aspire to at least one that you 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 hope to have how much of the biophilic cities concept is focused on on children and ensuring mm. that we increase nature exposure and nature access and that yeah. feeling of one wah. That is what we're going to call it now. That is wow and awe together. Okay. Why combination yeah. of wah. Yeah, I like that. <laughs> uh, yeah, a lot, a lot of it is. So, so we frequently say in describing a biophilic city, I've already kind of given you some of the, the sort of physical qualities of it. We sometimes say a whole of whole of city approach. So room or rooftop to region or bioregion and all the mm-hmm. spaces in between and those green roofs connecting to, to multiple layers of tree canopy connecting to ground level, you know, all very holistic uh, idea of nature in the cities. You can think of that a holistic temporal dimension of the city as well. So we sometimes say biophilic city uh, uh, reflects a quality of, of a whole of life immersion. A whole of life immersion, meaning that you you at a very early age have that connection with nature, and it's it's emphasized throughout your life opportunities, throughout your life through through adulthood and and into elderhood as we're calling it now. And so we have yes, it's very important um, if if we want to cultivate this, and we don't want to overcome biophobia. We want to cultivate cultivate biophilia. One of the one of the things about biophilia that I think is true, Stephen Keller. Uh, used to say this a lot that it it's he used to describe it as a weak genetic tendency and by that he didn't mean it wasn't important but that it's it's innate we carry it with us but it's it's, it's like, like a been, muscle been atrophied. It requires uh, yeah we have to exercise it we have to cultivate it that's what a biophilic city mm. has to do so we emphasize for example the design of schools in this bird book, I talk about every school should should be understood as a bird, you know, bird sanctuary, as a bird habitat, as a birds and nature need to be incorporated into the curricula of those of those places, into the experiences of those schools at early 
early ages. And and by the way, there's a if um, forgot to say this, if the listeners would like to see some of these films, you can go to biophilicities.org and there's a film page. There is a short five or six minute film about a wonderful school, charter school, just outside Atlanta called the Chattahoochee Hills Charter School. It's very near a place called Serenby, which is a, a wonderful yes, example yeah. of the biophilic community that Richard Louv actually writes yeah, a little bit about. I was just going to say we also had um, Monica Olson, who lives in Serenby, oh, and did. Jennifer Walsh, uh, her partner in crime for the Biophilic Solutions podcast yeah. on this season of the show as well. I was going to say they have a great podcast as they well. Do. Yeah. So, but the, the school, by the way, I mean, to an, partly answer your question, that this is one example of, of what every school should be like. This school is um, not one single building. It's designed as a series of buildings. The kids expect that they're going to be moving around during the day, spending time outside. They come with their coats and their boots. Um, there's a forest in the back. They take uh, lessons out to the forest. Nature becomes integrated into their daily routine. It's also an urban mm-hmm. farm. So we uh, we interviewed a number of these kind of wonderful young kids that several of them said they wanted to be farmers, which was kind of shocking because you almost never hear a young person say something like that. But, you know, they, they've been growing food and tending the garden, the farm there. And anyway, um, that's not the usual experience of a, of a primary school or an elementary school. So yes, it's very important. Rich has done, you know, created the children and nature network and, and focused a lot of his energies at, at, with, uh, on kids, I think is, which I think is really important. Yeah, no, absolutely. Talk to me a little bit about your nature pyramid, because one of the things that I really like about this concept, and I, I speak to to Rich and, and several of the other podcast guests about this too, is that I've become very ob- obsessed with this idea lately that our access and our exposure to nature is not something that we need to reserve for the weekends and on our vacation times, but we really need to prioritize this daily dose of nature. That's really become a recent obsession of mine. And how can we ensure that everyone has some form of nature at their doorstep so yeah. that they can experience that, that day, make, make nature your dose of nature, a daily practice in the same way you would with, with sleep and exercise and diet and all of these things. And I know the nature period very much focuses on this as well. So, so tell the listeners a little bit about that. Sure. So this is based on the, the food pyramid that was popular uh, here in the U S at least for a number of years has sort of gotten out, kind of gone out of favor a little bit for good Mm -hmm. reason, maybe. Uh, but it was uh, intended to, to sort of guide your uh, food consumption, your diet. And the things at the top of that pyramid were meant to be things that you you should eat in small quantities. Things at the base of the pyramid, of course, are, are should be the base of your diet or the foundation of your diet. So we had this I- idea. I have to give a lot of credit to, to my colleague, uh, Tanya Dankla-Cobb who came up with the idea, essentially. And we, several of us in the biophilic, community, Biophilic Cities community, but fleshed it out a little bit and developed it a little bit uh, more visually and written about it a little bit more. And and actually now our partner cities in the Biophilic Cities Network, a number of them have actually used it, have, have generated their own particular version of the pyramid. So, but that's essentially it. So you, at the base of that pyramid are, are things that you should have around you, your, your experiences on a, on a daily, if not hourly basis is as you move up that that pyramid, there will be important nature experiences, but they may be geographically more distant. They may be a regional park at the very top of that pyramid, maybe an immersive uh, nature experience that you're getting from uh, visiting a national Mm park uh, some hundreds of miles away. Very important, and many of us love particular places of nature that are not local. That's good. But to your point, the basic premise here is that nature cannot just be something that you get once or twice a year on a holiday. Um, it has to be all around us. It has to be what Steve Keller used to talk about as everyday mm-hmm. nature. So it's it's having birdsong, being able to walk out your door and see nature, have nature all, all around you, to have trees and natureful urban urban environments. That that should make up the the bulk of your nature, your nature diet. We can't afford the carbon footprint, you know, for you to be flying off somewhere to 
to satisfy your need for nature in, in a more distant a setting. So, so that's the challenge for, for cities. And again, go, goes back to this, this vision of biophilic cities as being nature, not just nature rich, nature rich is a part of, is, is a good way of describing it, but nature immersive, I would, I would, I would right. say. So again, we've got cities, there's a version that St. Louis has, has done. There's a version that Singapore uh, has done using, you know, examples that are flana, fauna and flora that are indigenous to that place and examples from there. And, and it's really interesting how it, it can also be used as a kind of diagnostic tool. So for, for example, in a, in a city like Phoenix, uh, Phoenix is in our, in our network, a uh, wonderful um, investment in what I would describe as sort of the middle of the pyramid. I think, can think of no other city or part of the world where there is, there's more acreage of, of desert, large desert parks uh, like the South Mountain in, in Phoenix, um, you know, 13,000, 14,000 acre park, uh, beautiful, yeah. was quite distant from downtown Phoenix when it was originally created in, I think, 1920, maybe. It's now very much in the city, city in a beloved park, but, but it's not a, except for the people who are lucky enough to live around it, it's, it's more of a regional, it's a park that you would visit on a weekend. So they're really good at the sort of middle of that pyramid, when you start to move down to the pyramid, you start to look at neighborhoods, at the neighborhood scale, nature, not, not as good. Lots of work to be done there. So, so the pyramid actually gives us some guidance, sure. it gives cities some guidance about what they ought to invest Where in. Where to prioritize what. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Hey, it's me, Nadina. Just popping in here to encourage you to take me outside. Listen to the podcast as you stroll through your local park. Take a bike ride along the river or ski down a mountain, whatever suits you. I know it's what the sponsor of today's episode would want. This podcast is brought to you by the Nature Conservancy's global coalition, Nature for Climate. The discussion around climate change can be overwhelming and honestly, downright daunting. The Nature for Climate Coalition focuses on what we can do rather than what's been lost. Its partners, including the Nature Conservancy, work together to get natural climate solutions, such as avoiding deforestation in the tropics and restoring wetlands and sustainably managing forests, implemented across the public and private sectors. Restoring nature is one of our best chances for mitigating climate change and also creating happy, healthy, and green communities for future generations. And that's exactly what we like to hear here at the Internet of Nature podcast. Find out how at natureforclimate.org. Okay, now get yourself outside and back to the show. Have you come across any cities that have seemingly hit all of the check marks along the pyramid? It's a good question. And I, I frequently get this question at that you know, what are the best examples of, of biophilic cities? And uh, in our network, uh, we have, by the way, we haven't talked about it at all so much, or, but it, we have a 26 cities now that are officially members as partner cities, and they have to go through a process of applying. And and so Raleigh, Raleigh North Carolina, just two weeks ago, is our newest addition, uh, Toronto before that. Oh. And so... Represent. We like Toronto. <laughs> yeah. We have, so we have Toronto and Edmonton. And uh, so, so far, our only two Canadian cities okay. in the network. But we also have several uh, thousand individual members and several hundred organizations. And so we like to say this is an aspirational uh, network. Um, inevitably, when the, when the news coverage happens about a, a city joining... There's a there's a sort of a, a congratulatory uh, Raleigh is a biophilic city now. Right. And, you know, this is we're not a we're not a certification network. We're not a we're not declaring that you are a biophilic city, and and it's a it's a journey as much yeah. as it is an endpoint. So I always find myself having to sort of qualify that. And that said, though, there there certainly are wonderful. Uh, examples and and Edmonton and Toronto are I think two really good ones that are have done so many great things and come pretty close to to a biophilic city. I, oh, yeah. I frequently um, you know mention Singapore. It's hard. It's its own unique 
case, you know, as a as a city state. It seems like it's a Singapore seems like it's in a league of its own sometimes. It's in a league of its own, and they they're one of our original ten partner cities, and uh, really have gravitated towards this this vision of biophilic cities. And as you probably know, they've they for many many years called themselves a garden city. And mm-hmm. Lee Kuan Yew, going back to you know longstanding priorities of the prime minister there, you know, have had this commitment to, to trees and tree planting and gardens and nature. Uh, more recently, they changed their motto to city in a garden, which is much closer to our vision of, of you know, we, we, we don't want to just have gardens or parks or, you know, forests to visit in the city. We want to live in the in the yeah. forest, in the park. And so more, more recently, they've now been, been calling themselves a city in nature, partly because they recognize increasingly, and this is connected to the pandemic a little bit, which is very interesting, that they don't want to just live in a, a sort of manicured, you know, kind of garden environment. They they want at least a, a bit of that wild nature. They want to see themselves as a as a as more of a wild ecosystem in, in a mm-hmm. city or a city in a in an in an ecosystem, in a in nature. And and so uh, wonderful stories, as you probably know about, uh, we did a little film actually about their uh, smooth-coated otters, return of the smooth-coated otters. If you're interested in that, go to go to our film page. There are now 80 of them in multiple family groups. It's not a perfect story, and the, there are still challenges, uh, still coexistence hmm. challenges, but Singapore is really uh, showing us how to, how to do that. And even in a very dense, you know, urban environment, uh, restoring, uh, regenerating urban ecology like the Kelong River and, uh, and the story of Bishan Park. We have another film about that, um, but the conversion of this, what was essentially a hard channel, you know, flood channel into a meandering, beautiful, biodiverse river, which is now now the most popular natural space in, in the city. Um, those are wonderful stories, and and so and the landscape replacement policy, the incorporation of vertical nature, vertical greening, uh, some wonderful, no better examples anywhere in any other city in any other part of the world than in Singapore, and mm. really cutting edge biophilic design happening there. So I think probably Singapore is in its own league, and uh, and it's not a perfect story. For, there is no perfect city, but uh, but it's it's doing more than most. Yeah. And, and what do you think that other cities can learn from that? Because I know discussions with colleagues, you know, and, and Singapore, um, of when it comes to getting that question, okay, which city is doing the best, you know, many people, you know, bring up the, you know, the photo of the Marina Bay Sands and the, and the gardens by the bay and, yeah. um, which is an, an incredible feat and an incredible project. And don't get me wrong, everything that Singapore has done is, I think, been an incredible experiment to see what works. And the last thing that I want to do is then start nitpicking and saying, well, you know, maybe this, maybe this, but I think one of the things, and that's interesting that they've gone through this transition from calling themselves a garden city to a city in a garden to a city in nature, because I think that's one of the main um, critiques that Singapore has gotten is choosing a lot of perhaps exotic species, Mm -hmm. choosing species that need a lot of of maintenance, a lot of manicuring and these things. Um, So amazing to see that they're kind of moving towards a much more rewilding process. But Singapore is also being a city state. um, It's got such a different political structure. How how do you think that cities, you know, across the Americas and perhaps across Europe, which are very different political structures and very different ways of of going about this kind of decision-making, what can they learn from Singapore? Well, I think there are lots of things they, they, they can learn. And I, I have to say that, again, going circling back to our the power of the visual, um, the power of actually seeing something, uh, not, not just a rendering, but actually seeing something built. And um, we've become big fans uh, of uh, Woha. There's a design firm called Woha. Just about uh, every new book about biophilic design has one of their, one of their designs on the cover, Oasia Hotel, you know, it's just, just a number of wonderful examples. So there's a lot of power in mm. just showing things that get built and how you do it. Um, and and a lot of that at the city level, I have to say, yes, the political structure is uh, much different. The history is much different. They are learning democracy. You know, they're learning um, a more kind of bottom up 
approaches. And I have to give them a lot of credit for being open to that. So it is a, it is a society and a culture that's evolving over, over time. But uh, the integrated um, policy framework, uh, one of the key lessons, I think, from Singapore is they're, they're doing not just one thing. They're doing a number of things that are uh, interlocking or, or reinforcing. So mm-hmm. they, there's a regulatory agenda that's quite of interest in, to, to our cities anywhere almost in the, in the world. A lot of interest on the idea of a green ratio, green area ratio standard of some kind or a green spaces factor system. London has just adopted one. Melbourne, a number of cities. Well, they have one of the best uh, systems. So, so this idea of... Of a of landscape replacement that you have to to replace at least the nature lost by the footprint of the building in the form of vertical nature and so and and there is now kind of friendly competition between building owners and projects to see which one can maximize that that ratio so the oasia oasia hotel aloha design structure um, has a this a, a remarkable green exterior flowering flowering native plants, uh, something flowering almost at any time of the year, uh, designed for wildlife and birds and really, really wonderful. But it, and it replaces that ground level nature by 1100% or something. I mean, it's, so they're, they're pushing the envelope, but it, so it's, there's a regulatory component, urban redevelopment agency, you know, enforced kind of regulatory approach. That's, that's a lesson, but then rewarding buildings, uh, highlighting through awards, there's an annual uh, green building award or a green green rise or, or sky rise greening award that that Woha buildings have won several times now, and uh, subsidies. You know, we we know that um, if you we want people to install green roofs or green walls or green elements, then create the incentives to 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 make that happen as well. Uh, that's that's an important part of the thing, and then changing the whole culture. Mm-hmm. And uh, the investment in neighborhood-based uh, gardening is is really uh, interesting. The planning lessons are are really interesting from from Singapore. So here's a here's a city, a city state that's got you know a biodiversity plan, has one of the few uh, coastal cities to have have undertaken a comprehensive marine biodiversity inventory. So it's, that itself is a really wonderful story. Mm-hmm. And experimenting with new ideas, I think, is and you and again, you can do that um, in a more kind of top-down society and culture and 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 government. Maybe it's easier. It is easier to do that. But um, again, I think they're evolving over time. And uh, and so, um, for example, therapeutic gardens. They're, they've installed I don't know how many therapeutic gardens. Really interesting uh, kind of idea for for a, a new kind of park um, in a in a in a city. So I think there are a lot a lot of lessons to be learned, and I, I guess I'm uh, of the opinion, and you would maybe expect this of me, given that we we run this global network of cities. That that yes, there are differences, governmental differences, political differences, societal and cultural differences, but the ideas in many ways transcend. And and they can they have to be adapted, they have to be fitted, they have to be, you know, they change and how they apply. And uh, but but the inspiration, it really is, just as powerful. So mm-hmm. and it and it it's interesting. It's going both ways now. So one one example, um, I, I mentioned the work we've been doing around urban birds. Uh, San Francisco also are one of our original ten cities in the Bowflex Cities Network. They first American city to have adopted mandatory bird safe design standards. Toronto, by the way, preceded them, um, really the first North American city. So I have to give a lot of credit to Toronto when it comes to birds. Uh, hard to beat birds. There's a, a wonderful uh, group called FLAP that's really been ahead of everybody else. But San Francisco, first bird-friendly, uh, mandatory bird-friendly design standards. New York has now adopted them. Uh, Washington, D.C. is about to adopt them. Other cities are but Singapore actually sent a delegation to San Francisco to visit and to learn about their bird safe design standards to two members of our partner of our network. Now, inspired by that, um, what they learned from San Francisco and others, they have just adopted bird safe uh, design standards. So those best cities can learn uh, from other cities as well. So everybody's sort of game is, is, is ele- elevated. Yeah. 
right? Yeah. And I think people are quick to forget too, is yes, social differences, yes, cultural and political differences, and yes, a big climatic differences, of course, That's true different as, weather as well. patterns that, Definitely. you know, we can't, I know there's something that, you know, like if we look at, if you just look at a city's greenness index, there was a partnership that did this, the, the Hugsy Green Index, uh, two or three years back. And I think Durban, South Africa came out of that. It's the greenest, one of the greenest cities worldwide. And a lot of people's eyebrows were a little bit raised because that was a city that was dealing with massive, massive water shortages and the amount of irrigation that, you know, goes into keeping a city like that green is obviously that's a little bit different than a city like Singapore, which might get, you know, tropical rain showers every single day. So it's, those are important to keep in mind. I think for the, for the most part, Cities around the world are dealing with very similar issues, whether that's flooding or extreme heat, fires in, in yes, not everywhere, but in a lot of different places in the world. And just the, the challenges of keeping your citizens healthy and happy, both young and old. That that's is right. something that is so universal to, to every citizen across the world. And so many of these, these solutions are able to focus on that. We want to talk about technology because I'm very curious about yes. your your ideas when it comes to if first and foremost technology is that the antithesis to biophilic cities. What is your what is your viewpoint on technology versus biophilia? Yeah, it's a very uh, nuanced one, I think, or I'd like to think it it is uh, that it's it's not just it's not black and white. But I I have had this debate. We were talking earlier about about Rich Louvre, and uh, and he and I both uh, have had major concerns about the amounts of time that not just kids but adults are have spent are spending uh, online or on screen or on our phones. And, uh, I think that is, um, uh, it's a kind of backdrop, um, and it can be distracting. It, it definitely can. Uh, but on the other hand, uh, I have come around to, to, to view a lot of the technology as at least offering the potential to connect people to nature. And, um, and we've talked I know in the past about um, apps like iNaturalist and something I used this morning on my walk into school. I use it almost every day and I encourage the students in my, my classes to, to use it. And we do the, you know, city nature challenge. And that's just one small uh, example um, at a sort of very individual level of how, how that technology can help us help create connections to, to nature. And uh, back to birds, I mean, there's no, no question, um, eBird and iNaturalist and the ability to figure out, you know, what that that bird song was that you just heard, what species of bird was that, what, what it's, you know, a remarkably powerful tool, just the ability to Google. I don't know how many times I've, you know, combinations of colors and actually just yesterday, this is more of a story than you want, probably, but um, there are um, a, a nesting pair of um, white-breasted nut, nuthatches, and, and um, the two, the pair, they like to nest in open cavities of trees. And so I happened to I happened to discover this in a very large oak tree uh, on campus, and they these two nuthatches were upside down uh, w- with their wings spread open, uh, swaying. And, and unison like this. It was the most <laughs> amazing, remarkable thing. If you're listening, there's no visual to see what I'm doing, but um, moving my hands. Tim, Tim's got his arms like, out yeah, and he's swaying. Wings, I'm pretending to be a bird. And, and, and uh, I, it was mesmerizing. It was just amazing. I'd never seen it or heard about it. Or, right. you know, I watch a lot of birds and I love nuthatches and they're always moving up and down trees, upside down. And they're doing, you know, again, back to kind of awe inspiring thing. Uh, things they're doing that seem to de- defy, you know, uh, physics. Uh, so I tried to Google it. This is actually not a good example because I couldn't find any <laughs> references to this behavior. But this this technology can deliver so much. And, and clearly, we're not going back from it, I don't think. It's, you know, it's going to be with us. So the challenge is always, I think, to figure out how the technology can, can uh, enhance our experiences of nature connect us to nature as your work illustrates nadina i know that there there are many ways that that cities can use that technology to manage uh, protect restore uh, nature in in cities and it's everything from you know we we have a lot of 
examples of of, of sensor technology in in use in our in our uh, in our cities in our in our network and and it's you know moisture sensors that are uh, telling us about a green roof that might need water or or of course obviously trees that need water so there are many ways in which that technology you know can can be very very helpful it's almost essential to maintaining protecting again restoring that that nature in a in a city if we want that immersive nature it's going to require management um, and investment in, in that. So, so a number of our cities are doing, you know, just beginning to do this kind of work. Uh, smart city ideas are certainly permeating uh, throughout our, our network. Pittsburgh, Pennsylvania is a good example of a city that's embraced a lot of smart uh, city technology. So they're, you know, they've censored trash cans and, you know, are sending, routing their trash collection, depending on what they know about whether trash cans are full and need to be emptied, little things like that. Obviously, Mm -hmm. a lot of traffic management. Um, I think the challenge is, again, figuring out how we can harness this technology on on behalf of nature and, and on behalf of building more connection and appreciation for the nature around us. And I think it can happen in many ways or almost, as, as you know, the list is is almost limitless, it seems like, a, the interesting things that cities are doing. I mentioned urban wildlife. And so another way that we think about a biophilic city is a, is a city that makes room for many other forms of life. So biophilic city is, a, is multi-species. That maybe is obvious from what we've been talking about today with birds and otters and so on. Uh, we want to live in cities where we have the experience of of hearing and seeing and and living. It's going to require a, a coexistence, and some of the knowledge about how to coexist is going to be derived from the technologies you're, you're interested in. So, Chicago is a great example. Uh, you know, an extensive use of camera traps and thousands of camera, you know trap images that are being analyzed through a citizen science, this wildlife watch, Chicago really? wildlife watch. Yeah. And, uh, Seth Magley at the Lincoln park zoo, um, be a wonderful guest for you, um, for your podcast. Um, and so they've, they've already learned a lot, uh, about, uh, species like coyotes and yeah, the th- thing they're adapting quite well. And, and Seth has set up transects that move through the city that are collecting images in different kinds of urban environments in that in that city, so we're lear- learning learning a lot. When it comes to birds, I'm a big fan of things like Birdcast. You know, the, the Cornell Ornithology Lab is basically using radar, bird radar, and aggregating it, reporting it uh, in in a in a visual map form, showing real time migration of of birds. A wonderful use of technology, and and the idea here is, of course, that cities we need more lights out programs in in cities, and and the ability to actually, in real time, see that there are going to be forty million birds moving that evening. Um, now is a peak time, and actually, with Birdcast, you you get the technology of deliver of an of an email or a text message delivered to you, giving you an alert, and so I, I see a lot of that sort of technology being very, very, very helpful and the ways in which the technology can actually help to uh, organize us on behalf of, of nature. There are a number of, of groups, for example, in, in New England in the U.S. Uh, where volunteers are basically getting alerts about uh, amphibian movement. Salamander is the first, you know, major rain f- uh, in the spring, where a lot of amphibians are on the move and are going to be crossing roads, and this um, idea of getting people out there, not not just to count them, there's a citizen science dimension to it, but actually to help them cross and to literally save thousands, if not millions, of individual amphibians uh, with with potential to you know tremendous conservation value from from that all of that organizing those kinds of things would not be possible without without the technology so those are just some examples and i I, i've come around again to to recognizing that we we need to be we need to be mindful of of the amount amounts of time we spend on online and and on and looking on screens and particularly kids 
but the technology can be can be a, provide some powerful benefits as well. Yeah, when used with a particular nuance and when used responsibly, just like yeah. any other tool we have at our disposal. I think one of the things that came up for me as you were exploring some of those fascinating examples, many of which I hadn't heard of before. So like BirdCast, for example, that's fascinating. I would, I would, very, very interesting. Yeah, you can go and, and by the way, if you if uh, listeners want to see it, you, you go to the, just Google BirdCast and you go to the BirdCast and you can, you can watch it in real time that evening during migration, but you can also, you'll see the time-lapse. You can watch the 24-hour recording from the night before. So um, they have added arrows and, and, you know, it's, it's uh, really impressive. And, and if nothing else, you realize, my God, look at all of the birds that are moving at this point in time and moving and moving through my particular city, you know, Mm -hmm. literally millions. It's just, it's a, it's wondrous. And most of that migration is happening at night. And uh, it's just, just a talk about awe. Yeah. Anyway. Yeah. Yeah. And what I, I love about that too is is sometimes the solution to to help, you know, birds migrate and birds move is can be something as simple as reducing light pollution. Um, but the solution is then not, okay, you know, we turn off all the lights at night as a city government that you can't just do that. So to be able to have evidence based yeah. and make be able to make data driven decisions about when it would be most effective to make sure that certain lights are turned off. I mean, that that's what gets me really excited because it's technology that's being used, not just for technology, but it's being technology that's being used in a responsible way to help us come up with better decisions to ultimately preserve yeah, nature. That's right. Which is what we want to do. And with Birdcast, I, I get these, uh, I get individual alerts that I can choose to turn my lights off. I mean, in my home, and we know actually that something like 40, 40% of bird, bird building, bird window strikes, uh, 40% of the mortality happens in residential structures. So this is actually really useful information for a homeowner. And so you, you know, like I think with a lot of things that have to do with environment, we have this feeling that we, you know, it's too big. Yeah. Uh, We can't make a difference. Not much we can do about that. But here's an example where the technology gives us very specific information and and things, actions that we can take that will literally make a difference Mm. in, in real time. As you were saying all of that in these fascinating examples, I think so many of the innovators that are working in the biophilic space can sometimes be a little bit afraid of technology because technology is often seen as the thing that makes nature no longer pure or no it doesn't protect kind of that 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 sacred that holiness that nature holds for many people and many of i think instead of being afraid that instead of prefacing it as we need to go back to nature it's actually we're moving towards nature rich communities that have this technological assist and it's not it's not this you know this dystopian vision where technology is going to replace nature in fact right. we're moving towards what some might argue might look very utopian biophilic cities but they've been able to get there through an almost invisible hand which is technology in many ways very true i want to ask you tim cuz i see that we are rapidly uh, going over time and I want to be respectful of that um, although I do feel like we could be here for several more hours and, and talk about all of this. We, we mentioned the biophiliccities.org uh, many times during, uh, during the podcast. Would that be the resource that you send people to if they want to learn more about, uh, about, your, about yourself and your work? Yeah, I think that would be the one the one best place. So it, what you will find there is you'll have a there's a actually a page for each of our partner cities. So if if there uh, are things that you've heard about Singapore or uh, Toronto, I think we have a page for each each uh, city. We should at this point, maybe not for the newest cities like Raleigh. So there'll be documents and links to city pages and a lot of a lot of information there. Again, I uh, do think for a lot of people, watching a five-minute film is easier, more enjoyable than picking up a book. We do write books, and there is a book called Biophilic Cities, um, and a more recent one called The Handbook of Biophilic City Planning and Design, and, and the most recent book, the, the Bird-Friendly City book. Those are all three Island Press books, if, if, if anyone wanted to 
to find them and you're interested in reading. But again, I think the, the film page is kind of scrolling through and, and, and sampling a few of the five or seven minute films would give you as good an impression or, you know, of what we're up to as anything else. Brilliant. Yeah. A, a testament to uh, good storytelling. Yeah. Tim, I will leave you with the last question that I okay. ask all of the guests who come on my show. And that is, what does the Internet of Nature mean to you? Mm. Yeah, I, I think the I think it means, um, well, I, I know what it means only, be, uh, well, initially because of your writing. And um, you, I'm not trying to, I was trying to remember when we, when you wrote, you've written several things for the Biophilic Cities Journal, which by the way, is another resource. And those are all, all those articles, all those editions are online. You laid out in one article what the Internet of Nature was. And I mean, to me, it's a really compelling, better version than the Internet of Things, right? I mean, I, I'm not convinced that my refrigerator needs to uh, know when I'm out of milk and needs to, you know, automatically order more milk and have it delivered to my door. I, maybe. I'm not sure. I, I'm still open to those ideas. If it helps my, helps um, adjust, you know, my thermostat and other things and lighting and so on to reduce my carbon footprint, that's great. But I think your version of the internet of, of, of nature is, the, again, back to the idea of harnessing all of these, all the power of all this emerging technology, the, the ability to collect information in real time that will help us to save those trees or to prevent the death of a bird. And again, for me, I tend to see this in terms of the areas we've been doing a lot of work. We, we've gotten to know as an ornithologist at, at William & Mary, uh, who has been working on a window sensor that will um, indicate when there's been a bird strike. That's really important information. We need to turn off lights and we do, but a lot of strikes that happen because of glass during the day, we don't know exactly what's going, you know, we want to know what the threat factors are. Um, that technology, that information, the collection of, of that, that sensor data will help us to design better buildings and will help us to figure out better facade and, and you know, better window treatments and better ways of organizing uh, buildings and building forms and building positions that will minimize the loss of birds. And we'll, not only that, we'll, we'll create the potential for, for positive bird, you know, for creating more bird-friendly environments. We don't want to just reduce the hazard. We want to create cities that are um, bird-friendly and bird, you know, bird-rich and bird, you know. So I think the, to me, the uh, internet of nature is, is the, the possibility of, of all of that uh, happening. And if, and if that, green if that uh, rooftop meadow can can be um the plant life there can can be sustained uh more effectively be because of that te technology moisture delivered water delivered whatever it will take to keep that roof alive that means again more birds more butterflies more more biodiversity and uh and and again all these other ways that that the technology can help us to connect to that nature. So, so we haven't talked at all about marine, marine life, but we have wonderful examples. Um, another film actually uh, about the use of, uh, you know, very inexpensive GoPro cameras and lighting uh, volunteer divers going in into the water and recording marine life in real time, sending it back to a screen in a public space, a pier. And uh, I think, you know, we, we actually do have now 24 seven, Underwater cameras that are delivering uh, imagery, you know, of of a of a reef or for uh, you know of of a otherwise foreign to most humans environment. I think th that that technology can really help to cultivate a sense of empathy, a sense of caring, a sense of connection to life and habitats that again may seem very. Uh, unusual to us, or uh, but they're close by and they're part of the nature of cities. So I think there's a lot of power. I, so I see it as a as a, a network of positive, powerful tools that can help facilitate greater greater caring and connection to nature. 
and uh, cultivate the naturalists of the future. And the naturalists of the future, absolutely. Mm. Yeah. And they're they're going to be, you know, this is what they've grown up with. Mm. And so I, I can't imagine doing that without utilizing, you know, an iPhone or this is just part of what they're breathing. And, you know, it's just the so as critical as some might be, we, we can't. This is the environment we're, we're living in today. And, and it brings us lots of benefits. And 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 um, especially for kids, this is going to be the way they, they learn about nature. That's just the way. Yeah. That's that's the reality. So we, we better harness that, reality, that power right. as much as we can. Yeah. Well, thank you, Tim, so much for coming on. I really appreciate it. Thank you. Thank you for listening to the Internet of Nature podcast. Want to learn more about the Internet of Nature? Subscribe to my biweekly newsletter at nadinahalla.com. I'm looking forward to bringing you another great guest next week. As always, remember to subscribe on your favorite podcast platform and leave us a review if you learn something new. The best way to support us is to share this episode with a friend or a colleague. Wishing you a great week. This show is an Unbound Media production.